And I always say to people, you know, you have a car, you need to put good gas in it. You have a racehorse, you need to fuel it well. So if you want to build an empire or even just, you know, have a go at doing something small, you need to have your energy and you need to feed yourself properly. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to today's guest, Emma Sinclair, MBE, who Tatler Magazine has described as a tech head who will be running the universe one day. Now, I met Emma on stage uh, interviewing her as part of a panel with Richard Branson last year, and I completely agree with that assessment. Emma remains the youngest person to have ever floated a company on the London Stock Exchange, doing so at just 29. She's been her formative years in M&A before moving into real estate, and then specifically the parking industry, where was where she founded and exited Target Parking. She now co-leads global software company Enterprise Jungle, which has been voted the most innovative enterprise software company in 2014 and has won numerous awards. She's also proud to have been UNICEF's first ever business mentor. She believes in the power of entrepreneurship to change the world, and that program embodies her belief that if we can get teaching business out there, we can absolutely change the course of someone's life. And as she'll talk about in our conversation, she's currently running an amazing campaign, hashtag help Emma help UNICEF, which is raising money to roll out innovation labs in refugee camps to help refugees have a chance to fulfil their potential. She's an absolutely inspiring, opinionated, uh, gregarious game changer. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Now, you're a serial entrepreneur. You're the youngest person in the UK to take a company public. You're an ex-investment banker. You've sold a car parking company and you're now a full-time techie with Enterprise Jungle and you own another business as well, uh, uh, the wellbeing club Wakeman Road. Have you... Oh, that's been and gone and sold, by the way. Oh, there you go. Okay. So yeah. tell me, have you always been this driven? Have you always completely marched to the beat of your own drum? Um, I think I've always had it in me. I mean, my dad took me to school from the age of four and we did all the things that kids do on the way to school. You know, what's your favorite color? How many red cars do you see? What is the three times table? But my dad always had the financial times delivered to the house and I would always tell him something from the financial times. So kind of the concept of being a business, the concept of being driven, the concept of making my own money, it's always ingrained, ingrained for me from an early age. And, you know, I've, I've had a job since I was 15, which is when it's legal to kind of get an internship at the time. And, yeah, I, I guess I guess probably I've always been a little bit more driven than everybody else. So how did it all start? You you went through university. Was, was it sort of your, your game plan to go into investment banking and make a career there, or was that a foothold into doing your own thing? Well, that sounds a lot more organised than it actually was. It was a, a slightly different approach. Um, and really so much comes down to my dad, um, as you'll hear. But when we got past the whole timetable and all the kids games we used to play, my dad had a couple of hundred bucks of stock in a couple of utility companies that had privatized in the UK and a couple of private companies. So every morning on the way to school, I remember opening the Financial Times when it was sort of so much bigger than I was. It was, you know, twice my height sort of thing, it felt like. <laughs> I would read my dad the stock prices. And that's just the thing that we did when I was on my way to school. And then as I got older, we would also look further down the columns because there would be 
other metrics and other information about companies like market capitalization, how much they were worth. Then I'd read him the back page where there was a column called the next column and it would give sort of corporate news. And so it just became the norm for me to talk about stocks and shares every day. So I did go to university and I did, I did a four-year course. I did languages. Mm-hmm. Um, although I spent a lot, I actually didn't spend a great deal of time doing language per se. And when I left, I knew that I wanted to do something in banking, but really my opportunities didn't come as a result of my degree. They also, they, they pretty much came because I took my savings. I um, took um, some money that was in the bank that I'd been given from family as birthday presents over the years that's been sort of saved somewhere. And I traded shares. Uh, all the way through college. I don't recommend this to other people necessarily, but it's what I did. And I made quite a lot of money. And instead of instead of sending a CV to investment banks, I sent um, letters and I sent my sheets with all my trades. Oh, wow. And I think that basically, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, it was nothing massive and I didn't have that much money to start. So if you don't start with very much, you can't make that much even if you're doing really well. But I did it, you know, in my first year summer holiday when I was thinking about doing Job, you know, everyone was doing jobs in bars and restaurants and that sort of thing. I actually had two internships in the city. Um, Amazing. And so from an, yeah, so it was like ingrained in me from much, much earlier. It wasn't really like a sort of natural career progression from being at college and thinking, oh, I must go in and do something in the finance sector. It was just like a, it was just kind of in me. It was what I did. I, I was terribly awful about attending my lectures at college, but I bought the Financial Times every day. And so how much of that, you know, the, the the car rides with your dad was sort of your classroom almost? It seems like you learned a lot in sort of those practical opportunities, early jobs, conversations with dad, maybe a little bit more than just that traditional learning in the classroom. Yeah, I think I learned about real life. And my dad would tell me stuff about work, which wasn't always highs. There were often lows and challenges. Um, and he would talk about what he was building and what he was doing. And, you know, I the concept of companies rising and falling on the stock market and why when we started to read the newspaper together and there would be good news and stock prices would go up or there'd be bad news and the stock price would go down. I think I just from a very early age um, had like a natural, I clearly had a natural interest in business as did my brother and, I, and I, we both hold that down to my father. And I think it was just like nurtured in the same way that a hobby might have been for other people. Like some people, you know, run track and uh, really like, I don't know, the piano. And I think in many ways, my interest in business was nurtured in the same way that other people's hobbies were. So often don't think of it. I don't think really of business as, as work. I think of entrepreneurship, my friends who've built businesses, learning about people that are in business too, as like something I love, which mm. is a real gift, I think. And talk to us about that first moment. So you're leaving that secure and stable job in banking and heading out to do your own thing for the first time. What, what made that decision for you? And, and what was it like stepping into your own enterprise for the first time? Well, there was quite a gap between the two, but I really remember the day that I resigned because, you know, you spend your whole life working. Well, I worked not so hard in terms of school, but I got really great grades and I definitely sort of was, I strove to achieve and my parents were proud and you get this job in mergers and acquisitions and it's really exciting and you know, people respect you and they're really excited to hear that you have a job like that. And I remember the day that I resigned, I wrote a resignation letter and it had been on my mind for some time that I wanted to quit and build something, but I was trying to plan both at the same time, sort of do my day job in investment banking, which is pretty arduous and bet. plan out the next kind of phase. Yeah, it was a lot of hours and I just, I just wasn't able to. And I, and I think that, you know, at that point in life, I didn't have much money and to just walk away from a, a paid job was a pretty big deal because, you know, I wasn't massively financially independent. 
I'd been saving money for as long as I possibly could when I had the inclination that I wanted to do something else. But I had this day where I just could kind of take it no more. I think I'd been mulling, leaving for, so, for quite some time. I had a really hard few weeks and I wrote a resignation letter. And I remember walking up to the stairs to um, kind of like my, my boss's boss's boss, but it was someone I really respected and admired and worked alongside. I didn't actually um, resign to my actual boss, who to this day um, still hasn't forgiven me. And I remember walking up the stairs and thinking that I was going to faint. I could barely breathe. And wow. I think it was because all these years of like, you know, you go to school, you go to college, you do all this stuff for your CV. And I basically got this job at a you know, young age in this great bank that was, you know, that everybody was like, well done you. This is a fantastic job. And I was walking away from it to the unknown. And I think it was pretty scary. So I remember handing it in and being terrified and thinking I was going to black out. And then... The moment I did it, I felt like the weight of the world was off my shoulders and I felt wonderful. And that's when I knew, that's the start of me starting to understand more about gut instinct, but also I knew mm. it was the right decision. And, and so, um, you know, you keep going. Well, you, you know, you asked about sort of the difference between kind of that and then starting your own business. Yeah. Um, that there were just so many, so many, if I look back, there are so many things um, that are clear to me now that weren't so clear to me then. First of all, I can't believe that I had the, in some ways, the audacity to be like, well, I'm going to vote a company. I mean, <laughs> I look back now and I think, I, I'm, I, and remember that at the time that I started planning this, I was 27. Yeah, wow. So, and, I, you know, I hadn't really, I can honestly say that I, you know, I knew I was reasonably smart, but I didn't wander around thinking that I'm some kind of, you know, business whiz. Um, so I remember a lot of things. I remember talking to, at my time, the um, the guy that I was dating who worked in his family business. And I remember him saying to me, you know, once you get past one person, once you employ one person in your business, company politics is just going to become a nightmare. <laughs> and I remember saying, I just don't even know why you think that. That's so negative. It's all going to be fine. It's really exciting. And it's wonderful. And I remember I had like enough money to hire someone part-time to help with like admin and paperwork when I was really starting to get cracking and, and, and plan my um, plan the vehicle. And I remember she had an issue with the guy on the front desk of the service office that we were renting. Mm. And they just wouldn't speak to each other after that. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, is this how it's going to be with, like, people and people management? That was one of my first kind of, you know, first challenging memories, which is, like, company politics. And just because you have an exciting vision and you're engaged and you're ready to put your sweat and blood into it, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that other people do. And you can't make other people dynamic. You can't make other people driven. So it's a real lesson in hiring mm. like from day one. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was exciting and it was empowering and it was terrifying. And I think at the time I just presumed I could do what I was setting out to do. Because as I said, I look back now and I can't believe I had the audacity to think that I could raise that money when I'd never had a business before and on a stock exchange and, and you know, start acquiring companies that I thought were interesting. I mean, I, you know, thank goodness people backed me because if I think about it now, if someone 27 came to me who'd never had a business before, albeit they'd been an investment banker, I think I would, you know, I, I would be, I would be a little bit nervous probably. <laughs> so tell me, where does that audacity come from? Where, where, where's the grounding in confidence in yourself and ability to back yourself that helped you do that? I think that I've always been taught um, that I could do that. So I don't really think, you know, I have many areas about myself that I doubt. And, you know, like everybody, we all have weaknesses. But I think that my dad had always taught me that hard work pays off and that if you focus on something and um, you work really hard and you perform well, then there are no 
boundaries. And I think that is one of the most wonderful things I learned from a life of driving to school with my dad, where he would talk to me about, you know, what he was trying to do. And, I, and it, it wasn't that he spent his whole life talking to me about a life with no boundaries, where he was building an empire. Not at all. But he did just do things that sounded so impressive to me, so exciting. And he was so, you know, and he was so motivated and driven. So I think that it's just was sort of, I don't know, it just sort of seeped into me. And I just don't really think that things are impossible. There are so many, even with some of the projects I have on at the moment or building this new business or some work I do with UNICEF, I don't, I generally am quite ambitious. And the older I get, the bigger my ambition is to make a dent in whatever it is I'm doing. So I, I constantly think now of doing things at scale. I very rarely think about doing very, very small projects because I know I can do bigger. And sometimes I'll take a moment to think about something I've suggested or something I'm working on. And I'll be like, holy crap, that's pretty ambitious. <laughs> but, you know, why, why can't I? Oh, I love that attitude. It's brilliant. And one of the things I'm curious about is, there's sort of this entrepreneurial fad that's been going on over recent years and sort of every second person you meet now um, wants to be an entrepreneur yeah. and there's there's been, you know, these great success stories, overnight successes, so to speak, and I, I put air quotes around that, uh, that probably allow people to think, oh, wow, it's just a case of having an idea and off we run and I'm going to be the next Facebook or the the next unicorn. Tell me, how, how hard has it been? You, this is four companies for you now, isn't it? Or maybe even more yeah. since last count. Yeah degree of difficulty? Well, I mean, so as you say, there's been a real cult around entrepreneurship. And I am really grateful for that because it's definitely given me opportunities to use my voice and have a platform that maybe, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been the case. But as to your question about, you know, how hard it's been, it's been really hard. And it still is really hard. I mean, I wouldn't swap it for the world. And I think, you know, I'm yeah, I'm still young and yet my life has already been more interesting than I could ever have dreamed of. But I have missed friends' weddings, birthdays. You know, I've worked late. I've been exhausted. I've worn myself out. Um, you know, I haven't always um, been able to enjoy the same things that everybody else has enjoyed. Sometimes, you know, I make time for my family without fail. But it's a really, really, um, it can be a really tricky existence because, People talk about persistence and people talk about when you're building a business, how you have to just keep on keeping on. And it's absolutely true. And, and it can be very exhausting because you don't really switch off when something is your own. And you, in my mind, you certainly don't switch off when you are effectively very invested in what you're doing yeah. and your future is very tied to it. You know, I don't know many entrepreneurs who start businesses who the first thing they do is they set up a pension scheme. I mean, your business <laughs> is your pension. So yeah. there is just so much precariousness and risk and there's this enormous um, expectation that entrepreneurs are, are sort of cash rich and, and are building something and have, have, have got many means at their disposal. And that really isn't the case. It's typically on your exit that you, um, you know, that the uh, reward comes in. So for anyone who thinks that it's just fun and you get to be your own boss and you can just like wander off at lunchtime when you feel like it, well, you totally can, but then you're just not going to build a business. So <laughs> it is, it, it comes with, it comes with a lot of pain at times, but also a lot of pleasure. And tell me, what was it like, you know, you obviously had enormous uh, amount of success at quite young and that included a lot of public accolades. You became a really powerful voice across the world, really, I would say, in, in female entrepreneurship, uh, in the role of business, certainly in the UK, in the entrepreneurship community. Uh, you, you know, you've, you've received an MBA. What was it like handling that success? How do people respond to you? And, and how was that journey for you? Um. 
I, I feel like I'm not sure that that is entirely true yet. I mean, I'd love to think when maybe I make my next exit, then I'll have made a real dent um, and it'll be more sizable. I think what's what's happened is in the in the ecosystem that is the UK and maybe the US and sort of some small parts of the world, I've had the opportunity to use my voice and I've had the opportunity to meet and talk to a lot of people. That's been an amazing treat and pleasure. Um, the MBE that you mentioned was just the most surprising um, highlight of last year. Um, it was just, it was really glorious for a lot of reasons, in particular because my grandma was just so overwhelmed and so proud. And I'm, yeah. I'm really lucky that I still have one, one grandma, my grandma Rose alive. And so Love and that. she's my biggest fan. She's, she's the only one that reads all my press. How and, good are grandmas? Um, it's really interesting. I mean, like she nails it, but she's, you know, she's getting older. She just turned 93 and she's a bit more forgetful and she doesn't always have a sort of, she can't always keep a total handle on what it is I do. She just knows that I'm quite busy. So I sometimes take her with me to events <laughs> and I take her with me. So after the MBE ceremony, I also took her to something um, tied to Downing Street and she'd never really um, you know, been in the setting that we visited. And it was just like a real treat for her. And so, you know, these things are amazing if you have amazing people to share them with. Mm. And, um, you know, so it, it's it's. It's, it's wonderful to be able to have a voice and to be able to have some influence. Um, and really, that's as far as I've got with it. Because, you know, the, the, to amplify your voice on a, on a global scale, I think I've got a bit more work to do. Um, but I certainly know the causes and the things that I want to um, do that with. And I've, I have a total obsession with talking about the importance of having a side gig, you know, having doing something else other than your day job to kind of expand your mind and and pay it forward and make the world a better place. So hopefully with increased, hopefully business success will come um, the ability to use a voice louder. But jealousy, you know, I mean, I, my one comment on that is I am just simply not interested in competing with anyone else. Yeah. I hope we all make it. I don't understand when other people are unable to embrace that mentality. It's just a horrible waste of energy. I've certainly been on the other end of it from time to time and mm. sometimes in the most devastating and awful way. And, um, you know, my, my family always taught me that the best revenge is success. So I really just focus on that. Love that. Higher ground. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I mean, Michelle Obama did it better when she said, when they go low, we go high. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a message in that for all of us, isn't there? Which is, you know, just maintain your dignity always. And I think that's a really important message. Whatever you're doing, however tired you are, maintain your dignity. Now, when you touched on the, the difficulty, you mentioned, you know, you'd run yourself into the ground. There's a lot of tired nights. There's a lot of long hours. What habits or routines yeah. have you developed over your time in business that are, enable you to sort of sustain the operating level that you work at? Well, I mean, it's in some ways I've had to learn the hard way because you don't know that you can weigh yourself out until you weigh yourself out. Mm. Um, so I've had that lesson um, and I'm extremely conscious of it. Um, I'm really interested and focused on preventative health. So basically just taking care of yourself so that you don't, you know, damage yourself or weigh yourself out. And I say, I mean, I'm vegan and have been for quite some time, nearly 15 years. Um, I've been vegetarian for almost 30 years. And I think that, and I eat um, a very healthy, nutritious diet. And I always say to people, you know, you have a car, you need to put good gas in it. You have a racehorse, you need to fuel it well. So if you want to build an empire or even just, you know, have a go at doing something small, you need to have your energy and you need to feed yourself properly. Um, I exercise in the morning before work pretty early. Um, and I meditate, which has been, it's, it's a new addition to my life. Um, there's a wonderful place in London called the London uh, Meditation Center. And the founders of that taught me to meditate last year. Wow. And it's, 
yeah, it was a, a really important gift um, in many ways to have done that. It really didn't initially resonate with me. And the concept of taking 20 minutes a day or twice a day out to just meditate was something that seemed inconceivable and impossible because, you know, time is very short. But actually that quietening of the mind and that sort of sitting still has um, positive repercussions in everything that I do because, you know, I'm just, I'm a little bit more still and my mind is able to settle down, which is always a real challenge for me. I'm always thinking about something. So I definitely, you know, I definitely think the kind of combination of, of nutrition, meditation and exercise is important. And I also hugely account, um, I hugely hold um, having side gigs and doing other non-work related projects to just generally keeping strong and having my best ideas because you just cannot only focus on your day job um, and sort of meticulous ambition all of the time. Your brain has to be allowed to wander into areas that it doesn't when you're doing your work in order to, you know, in order to have creative thought, in order to evolve your leadership skills. You just simply cannot be, I don't think you can be a great leader or a great business person if all you do is work. I love that point. I think so many people uh, get a little lost in things and make the comment, like you, the word busy is so overused nowadays. How oh, it drives me mad. When people tell me they're too busy for something. I'm just yeah. like, you know, I, I understand. I mean, I, you know, you can't judge other people by your own norms. I also recognize that perhaps some people are better at handling busy than others. But um, yeah, I mean, I always think I can make time. So I'm never massively impressed with people that can't make any time for anything else because it just doesn't really doesn't really sit so well with me. But, you know, we're all different. We can't judge everybody by our own standards. And this might be a little related to what you've just talked about in terms of meditation and, and maintaining the side gig, but how have you been intentional around continually giving yourself space or time out to be able to work on things, be in a space to innovate around new business ideas, think about the way that you might solve problems? How do you work that into your routine and life? Well, I'd love to say that I have a method and um, here it is. And well done me, but it's just simply not true at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone that suggests that they're kind of any, anyone who sounds like their life is so organised and and wonderfully um, sort of sequential is I always I'm naturally suspicious of. Um, <laughs> sometimes my hand is forced to have to take two or three days to do something that might not be how I want to spend my time, and then I realise when I'm doing it what a glorious way to spend time, and that however busy I am, that taking time out and being forced not to think about the things that I need to be busy with is actually really beneficial. So, I mean, just to give you an example, over the last kind of 2016, 2017, last year, I went to see a band called Rudimental play on Lake Malawi um, with friends, um, which was just terrible timing, but was for a charity I love and friends of mine who um, are doing wonderful work in Malawi. And, you know, I mean, it was just so wonderful and so glorious. And I sat in the middle of Lake Malawi with a couple of people there was pure stillness. You could see no one on any horizon around you. And, you know, I was able to just breathe. Um, and on a kind of more work um, level, I went, um, there's a wonderful initiative here called SBC to UK, Silicon Valley to UK, started by Sherry Kutsu and Reid Hoffman. And it takes a group of female founders from the UK that have high growth tech companies to Silicon Valley, where we get the opportunity to meet the people who've already massively scaled and really interesting people. And I went with a, tw- a gang of um, 11, 12 other women from the UK who are now my tribe. We have this WhatsApp group where literally anything you need, you know, you're having a bad day, you need a legal document, you need to reach, you know, Cheryl Sandberg, the group can help. 
And we did this amazing trip for three days. We went to, you know, we went to Facebook, we went to Eventbrite, we met Cheryl. Um, You know, we just had an amazing time and it was not the kind of thing I usually do. I don't usually like organized trips. (laughs) The idea of going in a bus, it sounded like a school thing. I'm like, I don't know these people. But, you know, first of all, this gang um, are absolutely, I think they're critical to my well-being because they're like, we all know what each other are going through. One of us has always gone through something that might be a challenge that the other one is going through. And also it's a, a group of people who just want to give you a high five when you do something great or, you know, when you have like a wonderful work success or, you know, you have a piece of, about your business in the press or you're having a great hair day, whatever it is. Like <laughs> high fives all around. Um, so, you know, these things were not things I'd ordinarily say, well, I'm going to book that in and I have the time to do that. Yeah. They just gave me time to put my brain somewhere else. And in doing so, it just kind of provided a different perspective on um, on my day job, really. Sensational. And now tell me, I know you've got a serious commitment to paying it forward. That passion, where does that come from? And, and talk to us about the work that you're doing with UNICEF. Well, I mean, so again, to talk about family, but they really are, I think, you know, the more, the older I get, the more I realise that I've, personally speaking, I've been very fortunate to have great role models around. But my parents have been doing work for a charity that's called Variety. It looks after children and it's, oh, it's a brilliant. global charity. And it, it you know, helps um, disabled, disadvantaged children. And I've always been involved in that because they have. So from a really early age, um, there would be kind of trips and museum trips and like, you know, taking kids on boats down the, the River Thames. And when my parents would go to one of these events, I would go with because I was little. And so I went from a very early age to all kinds of um, charity events and days out and and that was just totally normal. So I think that it's something that I've just been brought up with. Um, the other thing is, is that I'm really, really aware that I am really, really lucky. Um, mm. You know, there are a lot of things that I have been very fortunate. Um, to, you know, I've had a great education. I've had um, loving parents who have unconditionally supported me, except on my really, really naughty days, but they were few and far between. Um, you know, I, I've been working since I was 16. I started work at McDonald's, so I always had a little bit of disposable income so I could buy myself, you know, odd top and pair of shoes. You know, I, I, I certainly have never had, you know, I've never had a lavish life in my family. Don't come from any great wealth. I've just been really fortunate, and I think I'm really aware of that. And also, the older I get, and the more that I have experience in business, and my business grows, and I have a, the most amazing network. So it's like you and I connected on a stage in London. We've stayed in touch. If you mm. need something or I need something, we know where to reach each other. And I think that I've just built such a wonderful network that, um, you know, when you put people together or sometimes, you know, give a quick hand to something, you know, good things can happen. And I think as you know more people and as you have more experience and as you're perhaps your, um, you know, your requests carry more weight, you're able to kind of knock down barriers for other people that I would say were knocked down for me when I was getting started in business. There were so many people who gave me big help, small help, who were just so critical to making my, mm. um, you know, my my early business days so much easier. And so I feel like on both a business front and in a sort of general, in a, in a, in a sort of general more like world peace front without wanting to sound like Miss World, you know, <laughs> if you have the ability to pay it forward, I don't want to sound like Miss Congeniality, which obviously is a wonderful film, but, um, you know, <laughs> if you have the ability to pay it forward, I think that we, I think that it's the right thing to do. And, and I understand that not everybody feels that way, but I do. And so... Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really, I love to make good things happen. Awesome. And, and with UNICEF, how, what was the origin of that? And what sort of work have you done with them? Um, so that's been so interesting. Um, 
I'd say that I probably I didn't do a lot of travel or sort of off the beaten track travel when I was much younger. So I've had the opportunity to see see places and do things with them I wouldn't ordinarily. Well, most people don't ordinarily get the opportunity to. But in I think it was about 2013, um, Barclays at the time were funding a project with UNICEF um, where they were teaching life skills in hard to reach spaces. There are, you know, there are 250 million people under the age I think of 24 or something in in, in Africa who are very unlikely to ever have employment. And therefore, entrepreneurship is the only way that they will survive. So I was very fortunate to be, at the time, the first business mentor for UNICEF. And I went on my first trip to Zambia in 2014. And I remember thinking, what is some chick from London who IPO'd her company going to have, you know, going to be able to teach or be able to have in common with people where I'm going to be teaching entrepreneurship skills in hard to reach places where some of the villages we went to, no one had ever met anyone that was from um, from overseas. Mm. And I realized, you know, and, and that was, it was a really amazing life lesson. Um, I realized on my first trip, and and, and it's really, um, it's really um, shaped how I think about everything going forward. Actually, entrepreneurship is a completely universal language. Whoever you are, whatever size, shape your business is, or what you're trying to do, we, we all speak the same language. Because I, I, I remember I was on like day three of my trip in Zambia. And I was in a classroom in, in, a, in, a, in a very, in a village that had taken us eight hours to reach with no road. And I'm talking to the, um, all of the young people there. And there was a, a young guy called Kenneth. And he made, he had basically made a, a very, very loose living selling, burnt, you know, you, you take cut trees down, burn the trees, and then that would be used as kind of charcoal. And then we set it by the roadside. And you could barely make a living for that. And it's also obviously terrible for the climate. Mm. And he's got a tiny, tiny sort of mini micro loan to buy seeds. And I started planting a few seeds in the ground. And it had turned into effectively really, really large gardens with fruits and vegetables. His sister-in-law has seen what he was doing, took a micro loan out, and then had fields and fields of cabbage and vegetables. And then they had you know, not only enough to eat, but some left over to sell. They were thinking about, you know, what next cooperatives to go to villages so they get better prices by sort of pooling all together. And I just saw the exact same entrepreneurship that I might see anywhere I travel in, you know, the UK or the US or in Australia. We're all the same. So that was really, really amazing. And I also, you know, it taught me that it, it taught me that um, first of all, there are things I know that can make a difference and can really help. And it also taught me to think about um, ways to solve problems at scale. So when I was in Zambia, um, you know, one of the issues there is that no one's ever going, you know, there are a lot of the young people I met will never have the opportunity to have a job. So sort of scaling these um, workshops to teach people entrepreneurship skills was really important because it wasn't just teaching people very simple, you know, P&L skills. People were taught about depreciation, mm. about how to register a company, about, you know, and, and I met people who, um, you know, had started businesses that were kind of in year one, year two, year three, who were on their ways to doing things to lead to a kind of real family self-sufficiency. And I also met a couple of people, which, you know, happens when you travel the world, who had that kind of magic, I always call it magic pixie dust. You could just tell whatever they're going to do, they were going to be successful. So I can't wait to see how some of those kids do. And then it's kind of fast forwarded to this year, where this year, the most recent trip I took was to Jordan, actually only a couple of weeks ago. And I went to al Azraq. Um, in in Jordan, which um, I mean, there are 650,000 Syrian refugees in Jordan at the moment, and there are 50 million refugee and migrant children who've been uprooted uprooted from their homes everywhere in the world. Jeez. So one of I know 50 million children is terrifying, isn't it? I mean, it they're is. missing out. 
you know, you and I had the chance to go to school, to learn skills, to kind of start to mold our potential. And, you know, these are the, you know, the, the kids that I met were just so wonderful and respectful and funny and smart and, you know, philosophical and motivated. So we went to Jordan because um, I'm launching a crowdfund in a couple of weeks' time to fund um, innovation labs in refugee camps and to teach young people digital skills, problem solving, and how to be entrepreneurial. Because if you think about it, we don't know where a lot of these children will end up. Their school's been, you know, their school life has been interrupted. Even if they have a couple of hours a day, it's simply not the schooling they would have had back home. And ultimately, one day they're going to end up somewhere and need to get a job. And, you know, if you have digital skills, engineering, coding, this can, you know, can change the course of someone's life. They'll, they'll always be able to get a job. And in fact, they could probably get a job from where they are right now if they can code. So, you know, with, with life being very difficult for them, um, we were just trying to find a way at scale that we could roll out skills that just make um, the next phase of life a little bit more accessible. That is a sensational idea. For people who want to contribute and get involved, where's the best place they can go for, for information? Well, if you uh, Google UNICEF and Emma Sinclair and Crowdfund, you will, um, you'll get to the page or have a look at the link in your um, in information about the podcast um, or ask me on Twitter. Um, yeah, you're very responsive on Twitter. Be, <laughs> I am, I am. Do you know, I get so many emails, LinkedIn messages, I get things all day long, but I, I absolutely love Twitter because if nothing else, it's a very short, you know, you can only really have a, a terribly short response. And that's a great lesson for anybody interested in entrepreneurship because people talk about, you know, how do I know and how can I find out and I don't know anybody doing anything. You know, I don't, I think most people are responsive on Twitter. If you send a short mm. note saying, you know, like, what's the number one tip or I want to do blah, blah, do you know a great resource or what book do you think I should read to get a understand enterprise software or whatever it is you're doing. I just think that people are generally quite good and quite nice and love ambitious and motivated people. So I think Twitter is like a really fantastic way to keep in touch. I'm a real, I'm, I'm a real Twitter fan. You are. And I love, you mentioned that WhatsApp group earlier. I think that idea of finding your tribe, you know, for people who don't necessarily have them, you know, sitting in their geographical pocket where they might live or, you know, in the office at work or in their school classroom, the ability to get online and connect with amazing people that can be that tribe for you in a digital sense is it's one of the gifts our generation's got. Totally. I mean, when I was at college, we just didn't have, you know, I couldn't go in, I didn't have a laptop. I couldn't open up and just Google, you know, a hundred things that I wanted to do. I had to queue for the computer room because we just didn't <laughs> have computers. It just, I mean, it makes me sound a bit old, but it just really wasn't that long ago that not everybody had a computer and an email address. Yeah. There were no sections. You know, I mean, fortunate to be one of the launch columnists for um, Wonder Woman in the Telegraph. There were no sections like that. When I was working in investment banking, there were no diversity groups or like women in business. It just, none of that existed. And I think to myself, in such a short space of time, this incredible resource has become available to absolutely everybody. There's no excuse for saying, I, you know, I don't know or I can't find out, because quite frankly, the answer is either on the internet or one or two degrees of separation, wherever you are. I mean, one of my favorite businesses from Australia is a lady called Annie de Mamiel. She now lives in the United Kingdom and she, she was a triathlete. She was a commodities trader. She now has um, a, a beauty business. Um, she um, had an unfortunate run-in with cancer and makes these really wonderful products. And she talks about where she started running, where she started life, because essentially in the middle of nowhere. And we just laugh now about how we just, 
you know, we just did not have access to anything mm. when we were first curious. And now you literally can be in almost any corner of the world and you can find the answer to any question you have. So what a gift to people of any age now who are curious and interested in anything and in particular business. I mean, the, the resource is just spectacular. People are very lucky these days. We really very are. Lucky. Now, one thing I read yeah. about you was that you were terrified of public speaking up until uh, mm-hmm. sort of your mid to late 20s. And I had the privilege of sharing a stage with you in London last year. You're an incredibly articulate and passionate speaker. How did you get over your fear of that? And how have you kind of, I, I imagine doing what you've done in business, there would have been plenty of times where there were moments out where you were having to step outside of your comfort zone. How have you worked through those challenges to build those skills and get comfortable in, in new arenas? Yeah, it's a great question because the other thing is, is people make all kinds of judgments about you when they don't know you. So I think if people you know, heard me speak, now I have you know, no problem doing so and anywhere at no notice and I never use notes. It doesn't mean that I don't still fit out of my comfort zone. But you know, how did I get over that? I, I was terrified of any kind of public speaking. I was that kid at school who never wanted to get out of sports, which is what everybody used to want to get out of, especially when it's winter in, in the United Kingdom and raining. Oh, I no bet I didn't factor that in. Yeah. Well, there was an extra level here. and I was like, no problem with that. But drama or anything where we had to perform on stage was just my worst. And, you know, I, I was always you know, quite well spoken. And to be, I, I represented our school in the European Youth Parliament and stuff like that. But I found it terrifying. And I remember that um, I'm not a massive reader of magazines, and I'm still not. I remember being in the hairdressers once, and there was nothing to read, and I was flicking through. And I think it was Vanity Fair that had an interview with Beyonce. So I start reading this interview, and she talks about Sasha Fierce, who was her alter ego, and how in a, in a sort of effort to separate her shy personality from her stage persona, she gave herself this alter ego of Sasha Fierce. And when she went on stage, that's who she was, and Sasha Fierce was the you know, bold mm. icon that could just go on stage and kill it. And I remember thinking <laughs> to myself, well, you know, Beyonce feels nervous going on stage and she's like, you know, a massive famous pop star. It's completely fine that I do. And a few weeks later, um, we there was um, something called the PLC Awards, so Awards for Listed Companies, and, and my business was nominated. And, you know, I was in my late 20s. I didn't know anybody else. I was walking into a massive hotel event on my own. All the things that I still would be nervous to do. And I walked down the stairs and I, I remember this as well. I thought, well, I'll speak to the man walking down the stairs with me because at least I'll have someone to walk in the room with. And I asked him what he was there for and I made conversation. And at the very bottom of the stairs, he said, are you helping organize the PR for the event? No. First of all, yeah. And, you know, now if someone said something like that, I'd be like, first of all, PR is a fantastic job. Do you know how to speak to the press? But also, uh, no. But it threw me completely because I, I was just, I just didn't even... And I went back upstairs and I called my um, boyfriend and said, I want to come home. I don't like it. You know, 800 people in the room. There's hardly any women. I really can't be here. And I remember he said to me, what did you tell me? Sasha Fierce. So he gave me a pep talk. I went downstairs. I thought about Sasha Fierce the whole way down the stairs. And to be honest with you, it was a mixture of that and also being thrown into the deep end. If you have a business and if you are selling something, you need to be the best salesman for the business because you are the front person. Mm. And the first time I ever had like a, I had to speak, I remember exactly what that was as well. It was in up north of England in Liverpool. It was a conference about shopping centers because uh, I, you know, I used to have a car park business and I had an opportunity to speak to all of the shopping center managers, which was like 
amazing. Oh, yeah. And it was the most terrifying thing ever. I remember I did like a little PowerPoint presentation to help me speak. <laughs> I was so nervous. And just, I think, with every occasion that went by, I, I it just became a little bit easier, a little bit easier. I now never speak with notes. Um, I'm, I, I can I'll ask a question in any room. It doesn't mean that I don't from time to time get terrified. So a few years ago, I was going on between Peter Thiel and Steve Wozniak on a stage. Oh, and I'm whoa. like, oh my God. Yeah, I'm like, oh my God, no one's ever heard of me. I'm going in between two global legends. No one's going to give a crap about what I'm saying. Oh my God, this is terrifying. And it was in San Fran, which is like not my home turf. So that was terrifying. I remember at the end of the Olympics, I spoke um, at the sort of a, a closing dinner in the city of London before Boris Johnson, who at the time was the mayor, who I think, and I spoke after him, that's it. And he's like, as far as I'm concerned, the most wonderful public speaker. He's very charismatic and very funny. It was terrifying. I'm like, oh my God, after like this incredibly funny, articulate, intelligent man that speaks for a living comes me. Um, so there have been times and there still are times when I'm a bit nervous, but I think that no one really knows that. And I think that people, um, most people don't know that about me. And I think that people would simply just not believe that I was always an incredibly shy person. But I've had to just knock it out of myself because you want to get from A to B, you have to pick up the phone and put up your hands. And the easiest way to get known in a room, if you're in the audience, is to ask a question. Of the yeah. Because they'll remember you afterwards. Great tip. And so... Yeah, I, I remember the first person asked me a question. I, I remember the first person that tweets me and I replied to the first person that sends me a link, LinkedIn message really promptly um, because that's like the kind of person that I was. And mm. those are the kind of people who have got like, you know, those are the kind of people that have got that kind of drive and motivation and ambition typically that I respect. And so, you know, I just I had to get on with it. But it's still, you know, I still sometimes from time to time um, get a little bit terrified, but, you know, you just get on with it, don't you? You definitely do. Now, for others, two quick questions sort of remaining because I know and I'm really appreciative of the time that you've given us. For those that are out there thinking about starting a business, aspire to be an entrepreneur, you know, they've got an idea they've been thinking about turning into action. What's your best bit of advice for the first step that they could take right now? Well, I mean, it's very, very much depends on the personality of the person, the sector they're in. I don't think that like everything in life, I don't think there's one size fits all in terms of advice. One of the really important things about a business, though, is if it's your job, if you need it to pay the bills, then you need to do some really basic maths. No one is asking you to build a really complicated spreadsheet with all kinds of projections. But can you set out all the costs, what you think you're going to do, what you think you're selling? roughly at how much and just put that out for two years and just get a vague sense of whether you can actually make any money from it. Because you know, there are a lot of very small businesses and really you know, ideas people have and they're fantastic, but they're simply never going to pay their bills. And mm. if that is how you need to you know, pay your rent, keep your lights on, or you've got a family, there's just some practicalities, which is, you know, what do the numbers look like? So I think that's at the heart of it. The other thing is, you know, are you do I think people have to ask themselves some very honest questions about what their motivations are um, and, and their personality. So I am comfortable with risk. I've always put everything I've had into my businesses. My money truly has been where my mouth is in every single business. And that's just something that's now become part of my DNA. Mm. You know, I'm comfortable with risk. If you're not comfortable with risk, if you don't have much to play with, if you find the concept of leverage difficult. If you, you know, if you like nine to five, if you like to spend your weekends always going out of town and not working, you know, it's quite possible that this is not necessarily the life for you. 
I think also asking some honest questions about yourself, some honest self-discovery is really interesting. And if you don't think you can do that on your own, ask some people that know you really well who will be honest with you mm. to give you some views. You know, focus group. Yes. Great source. You know, crowdsource, crowdsource opinions. No, but, <laughs> nice. but nonetheless, if you really have that driver in you, you know, I, I do also think, though, that if you really, really, really think that you... Um, you know, that you have something and you're, and, and people around you are saying no, but they're not people that you think have got the right source of advice. Go and find somebody else um, to give, you know, to talk to about this. Um, and go and find the people who you might be selling your product to. You know, mm. When I started this business, when I started, so um, uh, my, my day job is our software powers a corporate alumni network of very large companies. And when we were starting out, I went and I spoke to a bunch of people who were the likely buyers of our software. And ask them whether they buy this and talk to them about what we're thinking about doing, talk to them about pricing models. I, I went and did market research. There's really no point spending a lot of time and money building something if someone doesn't want to buy it. So talk to your market. There's, there's a three pieces of essential. Great advice. One of those. Now, final question. I know you're someone who really believes in the ability of the individual to drive change and to have impact and for their actions to matter. So for people who are listening today, what's the call to action that you'd like to leave them with? Well, I always think that there are a lot of things in the world that we're all very sad about and you can't change everything, but you can change something. So I really think that we should all take responsibility for the world around us and we should all try and do something, whether it's something for your neighbor, whether it's something for your family, whether it's something at scale, it doesn't really matter. But I think there's no excuse for not giving a little bit back because we're very lucky to live, you know, we're very lucky most of us to live in a safe place and have a decent life and we work hard and there are lots of other people that need our help. Mm. So paying it forward is just like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolute essential. Everybody can manage it. So in whatever way you can, doing your little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, I always say there's a few different ways to articulate it, but, you know, don't talk, act, don't say show, don't promise, prove. Just go do something, go do something nice, even if it's just like a really small gesture or just, just you know, checking in on a neighbour or calling your friends, just small things make a difference, people. So make a difference because it's really easy and it's a really beautiful thing to do. Yeah. I love that. Emma Sinclair, you're an entrepreneurial force of nature and I mean that in the highest of compliments, but you have an extraordinary heart too and I love the positive ripple effect you're creating in every community that you're working in. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your story with us today. You're kind, Holly. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom, Thanks for fueling your difference with me.